Can you see it? Well, let me ask you a question. What is your attitude towards lost pagans? You know, those wretched sinners. I'm asking this question so that we will examine our hearts and to see if our hearts resemble the hearts of God. To see if they resemble the heart of Christ. When it comes to our attitude towards the lost, I think there's basically four different attitudes. The first attitude is that of hatred. We can hate them. As Christians, we talk about hating the sin, but loving the sinner. But if we're not careful, we can cross that fine line and find ourselves not only hating the sin, but also hating the sinner, even though we're commanded by Christ to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Another attitude we can have is that of indifference. We just don't really care. A number of years ago, I was working with a youth group, and one of the, one of the girls in the youth group had a brother um, who was not a Christian. He was rebelling against the things of God. And I remember asking her on one occasion, well, how do you feel about the fact that your brother despises Christianity and doesn't want to have anything to do with it and is, and is perishing? And she said, ah, you just get used to the idea. I thought, wow, never get used to the idea that people are perishing without Christ. That's a sign of a cold heart. Another attitude that we can have that's a little better than the first two is that of welcoming. We welcome sinners. Um, If God should bring a sinner into our church or our life, we are more than happy to welcome them. I remember one pastor telling a story about a prostitute who came into his church, sat in the very back of the sanctuary, and after the end of the service, an older lady came up to him and said, Pastor, did you see who was in our church this morning? And he said, I did. And she said, well, do you know what kind of woman she is? And he said, I do. Can you think of a better place for her to be? And it was like a light bulb went on her head. Oh, yeah. We're not like that. If God would bring them, we, we would welcome them. Hopefully, uh, every church thinks they're a welcoming church. If you were just ask everybody part of your, that's a part of your church, is your church a friendly church? 99 times out of 100, I think the answer is yes. Our, our church is a friendly church. Uh, but how do you evaluate whether or not a church really is friendly? Ask the visitors. I, I can still remember uh, a while back when I was between churches many years ago, but I remember visiting a church. It was one of those churches where they had the new people stand up. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so I stood up and uh, there, was, there was a gal in front of me. She was new to the church too and she was going through a difficulty. And I remember after the service, a bunch of people here flocked to her. And you asked how she was doing. I just kind of stood there and I'm like, wow, mince me? I mean, what? What am I? No one said a word. Left the church, never, never went back. Um, are we really welcoming? Do we really reach out to people? Um, I hope we do. But there's another attitude that we can have towards the loss. And of course, this is even better than that of welcoming. This is the attitude of seeking. We're not content for God to bring unbelievers into our church or across our path. Um, We seek them out. We go after them. We initiate the conversation. We are praying that God would give us an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And of course, this is what Christmas is all about. This is what the incarnation 
is all about. You, you kids know that big word? Incarnation. Four syllable words. You know what that is? That is Jesus taking upon Himself flesh. Becoming a man. Jesus did that so that He personally could seek out the lost. That's what Christmas is all about. And it is beautifully illustrated in our passage this morning with Zacchaeus. And let's begin with Verse 1, that sets the stage for us. Dr. Luke writes, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. I find that very interesting. Luke says, Jesus entered Jericho, but He wants us to know He's not going to stop here. This, this isn't His final destination. He wants to make it very clear. He's just passing through. So our question is, well, where is He passing through to? And if we had been reading through the Gospel of Luke, we would know exactly where Jesus is headed. Turn back to Luke 18, if you will, and look at verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. They didn't understand what he was saying. Nevertheless, Jesus made it very clear, we're going up to Jerusalem. That's the final destination because Jesus has to die on a cross and atone for our sins. And then three days later, He's going to rise from the dead, which shows that the Father is vindicating the Son. But Luke's making it very clear with this subtle statement that He was just passing through, that we need to keep in mind that He is headed to Jerusalem. He is headed towards the cross where He's paying for our sins. And that's important because everything that He's about to do for Zacchaeus in this passage is predicated upon His death and His resurrection. So Luke is helping us subtly to keep that in mind. Alright, now we come to verse 2 and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He's got a Jewish name and Zacchaeus is in trouble. He needs help. And we can summarize this passage with three very simple points. Zacchaeus and all men are lost, but Christ came to seek the lost and Christ came to save the lost. Verse 2 says that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Jesus came to seek the lost and Zacchaeus epitomizes a lost man. First of all, he is not just a tax collector, not just a run-of-the-mill tax collector, but a chief tax collector. This is the only reference in the Bible we have of a chief tax collector, but apparently he oversees a group of tax collectors responsible for collecting customs due on goods passing through Jericho. And because he was a chief tax collector, he was probably hated more than a regular tax collector. <laughs> Bad enough to be a tax collector, but to be the tax collector of all tax collectors, if you will, that's even worse. Tax collectors like Zacchaeus worked for Herod Antipas in Rome, they were considered traitors. The Mishnah and Talmud, although written later, 
registered scathing judgments on tax collectors, lumping them together with thieves and murderers. A Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge or witness in court, expelled from the synagogue, and a cause of disgrace to his family. Even the touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. So people hated tax collectors. And think about this. When Jesus wanted to point out a bad sinner, who did He point out? Think of Matthew 18, where we have church discipline. You know, if your brother sins, go against him. Uh, if he repents, then you've won him over. If he doesn't repent, bring two or three witnesses. Um, if they repent, great. If they don't, bring it before the church. If they don't repent after that, Jesus says, treat him as you would a Gentile or a what? Tax collector. So in the mind of Jesus, a tax collector was the illustration of a sinner. But not only is Zacchaeus a tax collector, we're also told that he is rich. Anybody in this room rich? Compared to most of the world, most of us are rich. We are filthy rich. Uh, but that also would be a picture of lostness. Turn back again to Luke 18. This time I want to begin at verse 18. And remember, this comes just before this encounter with Zacchaeus. So if we had been reading through the Gospel of Luke, this, this encounter would be very clear in our minds, as it would be very clear in the minds of the disciples. Luke 18, a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wouldn't you love for an unbeliever to ask you that question? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you love for a co-worker to come up to you tomorrow? Hey, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? So glad you asked. <laughs> and Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I had kept from my youth. And Jesus thought to himself, Not even close. <laughs> but Jesus, trying to help him that he has not seen the law, continues on. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come... Follow me. Now, let's be very clear. Jesus isn't saying, you know, eternal life is very expensive. You're going to have to sell everything you have so that you can buy eternal life. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying you cannot serve both God and money. And right now, you're serving money. Money is your God. Money is the idol that you bow down to. It. If you want to be saved, you need to get rid of your false God. And then, follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He wasn't about to let go of his money. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? They thought a sign of uh, God's blessing was, was wealth. So the disciples are flabbergasted. Well, who, who then can be saved? What does Jesus say? 
What is impossible with men is possible with God. That's very important. Remember that. Very difficult for wealthy people to be saved. It's easier for a giant camel to go through the eye of a needle. (laughs) That's pretty difficult. Jesus says, actually, it's impossible. Only God can bring about this salvation that's necessary. So not long after this encounter, we have the encounter with Zacchaeus, another rich man. And the disciples would be thinking, oh, here we go. Another rich man who's not about to let go of his money. Impossible. There's no way that Zacchaeus is going to be saved. He is lost. He is beyond lost. His situation is hopeless. But Jesus came not only because man is lost, Jesus also came to seek the lost. Verse 3, And Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, undoubtedly, Zacchaeus had heard a few things about Jesus. We don't know exactly what he's heard. Uh, Probably he's heard about the miracles, feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, uh, who knows what. Uh, But word has spread and he wants to see who Jesus is. Uh, But being short of stature, aren't you glad the Bible didn't call him a runt? (laughs) I can relate to that because I'm not exactly towering in height, but... (laughs) He's a short guy. He can't see over the crowd. You know, it's like kids at a 4th of July parade. You know, they can't, they can't see. So he runs on ahead. He climbs up a tree. One thing is very clear. He is very eager to seek Jesus. That's what the text says, right? He wants, he's seeking Jesus. Now, why is he seeking Jesus? Two possibilities. One possibility is he's just curious. He's heard the news. He's just curious. He wants to see who Jesus is. But maybe... He's seeking Jesus because he's God in the flesh. Now, Romans 3.11 says, no one seeks God. That's right, not even one. So, if Zacchaeus really is seeking after God, why is that happening? Because of what we read in John 6.44, where Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me. No one can come to me for saving faith. Not just to to see how Jesus is doing during his earthly ministry. But no one can come to him for salvation unless the Father draws him. And that word draw could also be translated dragged. It's used of fishermen dragging their nets. And you might be thinking, well, wait a second. That, That sounds like people are drawn to Christ or dragged to Christ against their wills. No, I don't think they come against their wills. I think they come because the Father is overturning their wills. Think of this example. Uh, you're, you're a single guy, and uh, you would like to get married. You're of that age. And you have a good friend uh, who knows of a girl who would be really good for you. Okay? And you think, boy, you should court this girl. Make sure I set the stage. Okay, you got a court. You need to ask the father for permission to see this girl. Okay, I want to make sure I qualify all that. Uh, but the friend says, you should think about courting this girl. She, she is a godly girl. 
she is very mature in her faith. Um, I think you should uh, come to a party that I'm going to have this week, and she's going to be present, and just see if you might be interested. And imagine he says, oh, no, I thanks, but no thanks. Some people are trying to do this, you know, not really interested. And then your friend says, oh, wait a second, I, I just remember, I got, I got a picture here. Let me show you a picture. Very pretty gal. Oh, hmm, when, when's this dinner party? <laughs> Let me think about it. In Sunday school, we were talking about the gospel, which is the gospel of the glory of Christ. And, and if you can remember, think about before you were a Christian, you heard about Jesus. I heard about Jesus. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, it sounds like a great guy. Not really interested. But then a time came when God opened our eyes and we saw the beauty of Christ. We saw the glory of Christ. We saw the majesty of Christ. And we said, that's Jesus. I, I think I need to look into this Jesus. I think I need to check him out. So if Zacchaeus really is seeking Jesus for more than curiosity, it's because the Father is opening his eyes to see the beauty of Christ and he's being drawn to him. But regardless, we see that he is coming to Jesus. He is seeking out Jesus. But look at verse 5. Jesus comes that way. He comes to the place. And Jesus looks up and he says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, even though we're told that Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus, Jesus is the one who initiates the interaction. And also keep in mind what Jesus is going to say later in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Not the Son of Man will save those who are seeking Him, but the Son of Man seeks and saves the lost. So the true seeker in this passage is Jesus. Zacchaeus is up in the tree. Jesus initiates it. And I love the fact that he calls Zacchaeus by name. How does he know Zacchaeus? I don't know. But he calls him by name. And he calls each of his sheep by name. But then notice the imperatives. Zacchaeus, hurry. That's an imperative. Hurry. Well, take your time. Hurry and come down. For I would like to stay at your house today. Is that what Jesus says? Look at the text. For I must stay at your house today. And I must stay at your house sometime. Is that what he says? For I must stay at your house what? Today. Hurry. I must stay at your house today. What, what's what the imperative all about? One commentator stated it very well. Behind Jesus' summons lies a necessity imposed on him by God. The implication is that a divine plan is being worked out. This morning in my devotions, I, I read from John 4 again, where Jesus has the encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar. And it begins by saying, and Jesus had to go through Samaria. And I thought, no, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. In fact, the Jews intentionally went around Samaria because they didn't want to have anything to do with the Samaritan. He didn't have to go through Samaria geographically. 
he had to go through Samaria because the Father had a plan for him. And the plan was to bring salvation to a Samaritan woman. Same thing is happening here. We have a divine summons. Hurry, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today because the Father has an agenda for me. And Zacchaeus, you're a part of that agenda. Verse 6, So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Never in the history of a man of mankind has a man descended from a tree quicker. He, he came down so fast and he came down so happy. Amazing. And then in verse 7, And when they saw it, talking about all the people who were watching this interaction and observed it, when they all saw it, they all rejoiced. They said, This is the most wonderful thing that we've ever seen that God would reach out to the most depraved sinner. This is amazing. Praise be to... It's not what it says, is it? Nope. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And you know they said it like that, didn't they? Sniping. Sinner. How, how could he do such a thing? How, how could he hang out with such a wretch? Because they don't understand the heart of God. They're clueless. To, to them, Zacchaeus is just a despised man. Being the chief tax collector, he may have been one of the most despised men in all of Jericho. Look at that traitor Jew working for the Romans, working for Herod Antipas. I had anything to do with him. Not welcome in my home. I'd never go into his home. They hated him. They despised him. Because they didn't have the heart of God. A little earlier in Luke 15, you remember the three parables that Jesus told? There were 99 sheep, but then there was a stray sheep. So we have the lost sheep and we have the what shepherd? Seeking shepherd, right? And then we had a woman who lost the coin. And what did she do? You remember? She searches the whole house until she finds the coin. So we have a lost coin and we have a seeking woman. And then Jesus told another parable about two sons and, and one strayed and, and went away. So we have a lost son and we have a seeking what? I'm sorry, I fooled you. <laughs> we have, think about it again, we have a lost son and who was supposed to be doing the seeking? I'm going to help you with this. We have these parables. We think we understand them. We have two sons. We have a father. We have two sons. One son is lost. You know who is supposed to go after the son? The elder brother. The elder brother was supposed to go. The father would stay at home, take care of the business. He would send the elder son and say, I want you to go get your brother. I want you to plead with him and I want you to bring him back. Now, here's why this is so important. We need, we need to understand parables in their historical context. Who does the elder brother in Jesus' parable represent? Do you know? The Pharisees. Very good. The elder brother represents the Pharisees. The Pharisees are supposed to be going after the lost. They're also, this will help you, they're also the religious leaders. What are religious leaders supposed to do? What are evangelists supposed to do? Go after the lost. Bring them in. 
the elder brother was supposed to go after his younger brother and say, brother, come back home. Come into the family of the father. It's a rebuke on the Pharisees. Jesus is the true elder brother who goes after the lost younger brother. And you remember why Jesus told those parables in the first place. Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. He tells them the parable to explain why he's inviting sinners to him. Why he's going after them. Because they're lost. And this is what you're supposed to do to the lost. You're supposed to go after them because you love them and you care for them. And in the last parable, he turns it around and he rebukes them for not going after them. This is the heart of Christ. To seek the lost. He's seeking out Zacchaeus. He's the true seeker here. But then we have a final point. He didn't come just to seek the lost. He came to save the lost. Not to offer salvation to the lost. To save the lost. Again, look at verse 10 very clearly. For even the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't come to offer salvation. He didn't come to try and save them. He came to save them. When there's a lost sheep that's been given to Jesus by the Father, He saves him. Now, at this point in our passage, we have to read between verses 7 and 8. Um, if this were a play, you have to imagine uh, the curtain is closed and all the people backstage are rearranging the furniture so that there could be a scene change. And then when the curtain opens up, we're in verse 8. And when the curtain opens, we're now no longer in the streets of Jericho. Now we're in the home of Zacchaeus. Everybody's reclining around the table. Uh, Jesus has preached the good news of the kingdom, of salvation found in Him alone. And Zacchaeus has put his faith in Jesus Christ. And Zacchaeus is now saved. That's all between the verses of 7 and 8. And some of you are thinking, wow, you're really reading between the verses. <laughs> Can you really read all that into the blank spaces between 7 and 8? And I say, I can. I might be off on a detail here or there, but that's exactly what is taking place. And I can prove it to you by what Zacchaeus says and by what Jesus says. First of all, what does Zacchaeus say? Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood, which means he was probably reclining with everybody else. So this indicates formality. Imagine you're having a dinner party, everybody's sitting at the table, and, and someone, you know, they put their chair back, and they, and they stand up and they say, I have something I want to say. Okay, you have everybody's attention, right? So Zacchaeus is getting everybody's attention. And he says, Behold, this is the way of saying, Look at me. Behold, Lord, speaks directly to Jesus, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Wow. Zacchaeus does what the rich young ruler would not do. He parts with his money. This is Zacchaeus' way of saying, money 
is no longer my God. I'm more than happy to give half of it to the poor. I'm a very wealthy man. I can give it up. I'm more than happy to do that. Martin Luther said, there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse, the wallet. (laughs) And of the three, the hardest may be that of the purse or the wallet. Zacchaeus is a changed man. And then notice what he says. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and most likely he had, he was a tax collector. We all know that they're all cheats. (laughs) And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That's very significant. In the Old Testament law, Leviticus 6.5 required that the amount plus one-fifth the cost be repaid. Zacchaeus is willing to go above and beyond the law to make things right. Zacchaeus is a changed man. And we know it because of how he's dealing with his money and people he's cheated. I, I remember a long time, I don't remember if I was a Christian or not, if it was shortly before I was converted. I don't know if I ever told my kids this story. I may not have, because it's a, it's a negative story on me. I only tell them the stories but I'm the hero. <laughs> I don't know why I did this, but I went to a store and there was a really nice cross gold pen and pencil set. It was worth like 40 or $50 if I remember. And I stole it. And I wasn't really a kleptomania. I wasn't really, you know, a thief. Um, but for, for whatever reason, um, I stole it. I, I grabbed that and I, and I put it in my pocket. And, and no one saw me. No one saw me. I walked out of the store. No one stopped me. I got away with it. No one caught me. No one knew that I had stolen that. I got away with it. I didn't get away with it. God saw. I looked this way. I looked that way. I didn't look this way. God saw. And God said, you know, you're not a Holy Spirit. You, know, you didn't pay for that. Yeah, I didn't pay that. That's not yours. Yeah, that's not mine. You need to make it right. Yeah, okay. You need to make it right. Go back to the store. Um, I stole this cross pen and pencil set. I said, I don't know why, but I, I want to make it right. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Um, I'll get money. And the person said, you just return it. That's fine. And then I, I remember I asked, I asked this question. I don't know why. I said, uh, I said, this is probably pretty odd, isn't it? And I think, I think it was a woman behind the counter, if I remember. She said, no, actually, this happens quite a bit. And I was like, wow. And it, kind of looking back, that's kind of encouraging if you think about it. Um, every so often, people are so guilt-ridden in their conscience that they make it right. So that's actually a little encouraging that people would come in and say, I stole this. I want to make it right. That, that Zacchaeus is a changed man. You might be saying, well, why didn't he just stand up and say, Lord, I have faith? Because nobody would have believed it. I think it was Zacchaeus says he's the chief tax collector. Everyone watching would have said, yeah, right. Be like Lindsay Lohan saying, you know what? I found Jesus. I'm a changed person. You know what all of us would be saying? Yeah, right. We'll, we'll see. Zacchaeus is saying, I'm going to show you my faith by what I do. I part with my money. I'm going to go back to these people I cheat. I'm going to make it right. I really am a different person. See? You can see it in my life. And people were saying, wow, we, we can see it. You're a changed man. The only answer is that you really are a born-again Christian. 
But we not only have what Zacchaeus said, we also have what Jesus said. What did Jesus say? Today. Remember that word from earlier? Today, salvation has come to this house. Couldn't be any clearer. Today, salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus. That's why he had to come to his house today. Because Jesus knew today is the day of salvation for Zacchaeus. Today, he's going to enter into the kingdom. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to happen today. It's going to happen when I'm at his house. That's why I have to go to his house. Today, salvation has come to this house. Now, why does he say to this house and to, instead of to this man? I'm not going to be dogmatic here. Uh, but John Calvin uh, speculates that perhaps Jesus is saying, today salvation has come to this family. And you have to remember in the first century, when dad came to Christ, everybody came to Christ. They really did. Because in this culture, it's hard for us to imagine, because we don't have it in our culture, but in this culture, people respected dad. And if dad said, this is our God, we're putting our faith in him, mom and the kids said, we're with you, we're going to follow you, we're going to submit to you. And most likely, the whole family was converted on this day. And then he says, since also this man is a son of Abraham. Probably a double meaning here. He already was a Jew. His name was Jewish. But now he's not only a Jew outwardly, now he's also a Jew inwardly. Because he's put his faith in the promised Messiah. And then, of course, we have Jesus' words in verse 10. For, this is though Jesus is saying, do you, you see what has happened? I called this man. I, I came into his home. I preached the gospel to him. He is now saved. He is now a changed person. you see that? That's why I came. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why I have come from heaven to earth to do to the lost what you have just seen me do with Zacchaeus. That's what I'm all about. Seeking and saving the lost. And I think the commentators are right who say verse 10 doesn't just describe what has happened in chapter 19. Verse 10 is the primary verse of Luke's Gospel. Luke 19.10 describes the Gospel of Luke who presents Jesus as the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. That's us. Every, every single one of us has been lost or is lost. We serve a God who's a seeker. This is, what we need. this is what Christmas is all about. Why did Jesus take on flesh and blood? That's so we could just put up Christmas trees. That's so we just give presents to one another. Took on flesh and blood so that we could be saved. And it's good to remember that God sought us out. This is the lengths He went to so that we could be saved. And if He didn't come, we'd still be lost. That, that lost sheep would still be wandering out there. I'll tell you one thing shepherds do not do if a sheep is lost. Shepherds do not stand at the door waiting for the sheep to come back. It doesn't come back. Sheep are stupid. And we all, like sheep, have turned away. But the Lord has laid on Jesus Christ the iniquity of us all so that we can be saved. 
Christmas. A celebration of a Savior who seeks and saves the lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our great Savior. We thank You that He comes after us. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room that maybe He's going after even right now, that they would submit, that they would bow to the Lordship of Christ. Think of the author of Hebrews who repeated the refrain, Today is the day of salvation. If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Father, may none of us harden our hearts against You, against the voice of the Holy Spirit. Father, may we be submissive to You, our great God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.